distinct pleasure to welcome you to our latest podcast dealing with the timely and important subject of how to resolve the insolvencies of large financial institutions. These are often discussed under various acronyms such as TBTF for Too Big to Fail and more in vogue now SIFI for Systemically Important Financial Institutions. I am Charles Tabb and I am the Mildred Van Voorhis Jones Chair in Law at the University of Illinois and the resident scholar for the American Bankruptcy Institute. I'm delighted to be joined by two of the leading experts in the country on this topic, Professors David Skeel and Stephen Lubin. Welcome, gentlemen. Welcome, or thank you. Thank or, you. Yeah. <laughs> Stephen J. Lubin holds the Harvey Washington Wiley Chair in Corporate Governance and Business Ethics at Seton Hall. He's known to ABI audiences for his work on the Chapter 11 fee study, uh, but his re recent work has focused on derivatives in bankruptcy and Dodd-Frank's new orderly liquidation authority. Professor Lubin has published several articles on these topics uh, and has testified before the House Financial Services Committee on both issues in the past two years. David Skeel is the S. Samuel Arsht Professor of Corporate Law at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. He is the author of several books, including The New Financial Deal, Understanding the Dodd-Frank Act and Its Unintended Consequences, Icarus in the Boardroom, The Fundamental Flaws in Corporate America and Where They Came From, Debt's Dominion, A History of Bankruptcy Law in America, as well as numerous articles on bankruptcy, corporate law, financial regulation, Christianity and the law, and other topics. Professor Skeel has also written commentaries for the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Books and Culture, The Weekly Standard, and other publications. As just about everyone in the world knows, unless they choose to believe in denial and maybe the tooth fairy, the economy came very close to failing entirely in 2008. The two largest bankruptcies in history were both filed in September of 2008, with Lehman Brothers liquidating with almost $700 billion in value, in Washington Mutual filing with over $300 billion. <clears throat> the United States government responded with massive bailouts, much done pursuant to the Troubled Asset Relief Program, or TARP, signed into law by President Bush in October of 2008. In 2009, the government bailed out GM and Chrysler. Depending on one's point of view, uh, these bailouts either saved the world or were a pox on humanity or perhaps fell somewhere in between. There was no doubt, though, that these government bailouts triggered a strong public and political backlash. In the summer of 2010, President Obama signed the Dodd-Frank Act into law, which contained extensive revisions to our financial regulatory system. Included in Dodd-Frank in Title II is the Orderly Liquidation Authority, which empowers the federal government to trigger the liquidation of a wide array of systemically important financial institutions, or, quote, SIFIs, and to do so in a manner that hopefully will avoid contagion risk to the economy. If necessary, the firm can draw on the orderly liquidation fund to provide liquidity. After passage of Dodd-Frank, and with the memory of 2000, 2008, 2009's bailouts still fresh in people's minds, concerns were raised over both the specter of future bailouts by the government, as well as the prospect of financial resolution of an insolvent SIFI by government regulators. Responding to those concerns, conservative reformers embraced two core ideas. First, no more bailouts, or stated otherwise, bail-ins rather than bailouts. Second, 
shifting responsibility for resolving the insolvency of SIFIs to the courts and the rule of law rather than being superintended by government regulators. The poster child for these principles is the proposed new Chapter 14 for these SIFIs. On December 19th of last year, Republican Senators Cornyn and Toomey introduced S-1861, the Taxpayer Protection and Responsible Resolution Act, TPRRA, or Cornyn Toomey. Fundamental thrust of TPRRA is to first repeal Title II of Dodd-Frank and thus jettison the Orderly Liquidation Authority, OLA, for the resolution of SIFIs, and then secondly, to substitute a new Chapter 14 of the Bankruptcy Code as the preferred method for resolving the distress of such financial firms. In just a moment, we'll explore in depth the pros and cons of Chapter 14 with Professors Lubin and Skeel. Meanwhile, just one day before, on December 18th, the FDIC Board of Directors published a notice in the Federal Register setting forth its single point of entry, SPOE, strategy for resolutions under OLA and seeking comment. Notably, the Corn and Toomey bill adopts a similar SPOE strategy, albeit under the auspices of the Bankruptcy Code. SPOE means that the financial resolution is done through a single firm, namely the parent or holding company. Operating subsidiaries are not resolved, but in theory are to continue operations unabated. <clears throat> House of Representatives also is interested in and is studying Chapter 14. Earlier this year, in my capacity as the ABI's resident scholar, I submitted an analysis of the Corn and Toomey bill to the House Judiciary Committee's Subcommittee on Regulatory Reform, Commercial, and Antitrust Law, chaired by Representative Backus. Just a couple of weeks ago, that subcommittee held a hearing entitled Exploring Chapter 11 Reform, Corporate and Financial Institution Insolvencies and Treatment of Derivatives. Chapter 14 was one of the main issues the subcommittee was interested in exploring. Among those testifying was Professor Michelle Harner, who is the reporter for the ABI Commission to study the reform of Chapter 11. Chapter 14, then, is a hot issue, and we are lucky to have two of the leading experts in the country to talk about it. Professor Steele, let's start with you. Why Chapter 14? Well, the short answer, I think, is that a group of us working at the Hoover Institution, uh, who, who worked on Chapter 14, we're like-minded in believing that bankruptcy can handle the financial distress of even very large financial institutions and that it can handle almost any financial institution uh, failure. But we, we did think and do think that there are some problems with the bankruptcy code. There, there are a handful of things that need to be changed if bankruptcy is to be as effective as possible. So the original Chapter 14 plan was to come up with a, a cluster of relatively minor, in most cases, changes to, uh, to the bankruptcy code to make it more workable for a large financial institution. David, a, a common refrain is, quote, bail-ins, not bail-outs. Now, that is a very catchy phrase, at least for lawyers, but what on earth does it mean? Well, first of all, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of the term bail-in, um, although you're right that it has become a common refrain. The way I would distinguish them is, is a bail-in is the prov providing of rescue financing that protects one or more constituencies of a firm, that either um, keeps creditors uh, from suffering losses, keeps shareholders from suffering losses, 
or enables managers to keep running the firm despite the, the failure of, um, of the firm. And we're talking about financial institutions in particular here. A, a bail-in, as it's typically used, is some kind of procedure that requires creditors and shareholders in particular to bear losses. And the idea is that that will reduce so-called moral hazard, that if, if you know you're going to suffer if the firm fails, you'll try to act in a way to reduce the likelihood it will fail. Does that mean Chapter 14 would be a failure if we ended up with bailouts anyway? Not necessarily. And, and this is a very, very important point, I think, for understanding Chapter 14. It, my view, and I think it's fair to say the view of most or all of the folks involved with Chapter 14, is not that Chapter 14 is going to catch 100% of the large uh, financial institution failures. The hope is that it will catch most of them. So the more effective Chapter 19, or excuse me, Chapter Chapter 14 is, the less likely we will have a bailout in any given uh, case. In some cases, I think it's just inevitable you're going to get a bailout. In, in 2008. Citigroup was going to be bailed out no matter what system you had in place. And so, so the, the, the fact of a bailout doesn't necessarily mean Chapter 14 uh, fails. But Chapter 14 would be a failure if regulators were not more willing to allow bankruptcy to be used. Thank you. Uh, Professor Lubin, in the spirit of the old Saturday Night Live debates uh, with Dan Aykroyd and Jane Curtin, I'll invite you to counter. So why not Chapter 14? Well, I think, you know, it, it depends what we mean by Chapter 14. Um, if Chapter 14 means a amendments to the bankruptcy code to make the bankruptcy code more workable for a financial institution, I think uh, David and I are in agreement on that. If we mean by Chapter 14 either the Hoover proposal or this specific bill, that's a different story. Um, in particular, I think this specific bill is well, to put it politely, massively unrealistic um, uh, for a variety of reasons. So well, you answered my next question. I, I was going to ask, uh, are you saying that <clears throat> Chapter 14 is a bad idea in concept or just that Chapter 14 as effectuated in the Corning, Cord and Toomey bill won't work? Yeah, I, I think it's you know the specific proposals thus far that I would uh, uh, disagree with. I think the general idea of something like Chapter 14 or even amendments to Chapter 11 to make it more workable in the case of a large financial, financial institution are a very good idea, and we need to do that because especially in the case of a financial institution, it fails in isolation, not as part of a broad financial crisis, but a single failure in isolation, we should make Chapter 11 more workable for that kind of situation. The, the specific problems with, with this bill in particular are, the, for example, the repeal of public financing um, we have never had a private dip loan of as much as even $10 billion, but in an article I wrote for a symposium at the University of Cincinnati a couple of years ago, I suggested that you know, if Bank of America were to fail, it would probably need funding somewhere in the neighborhood of $300 billion. So an order of magnitude far beyond anything private dip loans have ever done before. Do you think, Professor <laughs> Lubin, uh, that we would be better off just sticking with the orderly liquidation authority, or do you think that OLA is also uh, hopelessly flawed? <laughs> well, OLA, um, I don't know if it's hopelessly flawed. It's, it's clearly got its problems. Um, and, you know, I, I think David and I are in agreement on that, too. Um, OLA, as originally enacted, um, seemed like t 
terribly complex, and I can't imagine it would have ever worked as originally envisioned. The single point of entry uh, process, which I know we'll talk about a little bit later, is actually, I think, a huge improvement on that front. But it's still got its problems, and it's still, I think David and I would also agree, you know, if it were to exist, you know, I still also envision it as being a backstop um, to a a preference for some sort of bankruptcy-like solution first, to try that first, if possible, especially outside of the context of a sort of broad financial collapse. Well, David, I know you're not a huge fan of uh, OLA. In your opinion, what is wrong with OLA? So my answer is very similar to to Stevens. I I think as drafted, there's some significant problems with OLA. I think the single point of entry approach, which is, in my view, arguably illegal under OLA, but but I think uh, the FDIC will be able to get away with it. I think the I think the approach is much better than than OLA itself is. As far as OLA, the the starting problem from my perspective is it it was really built on a false premise. The premise of OLA, as it was defended in Congress, was the FDIC has done a great job of resolving bank failures for the past 75 years. I heard this over and over in the hearings. FDIC has done a great job of resolving bank failures, so we need to give them all the discretion and all the powers to do whatever they want to do when a big financial institution gets in trouble. They don't have enough power to deal with the big financial institutions. The problem, in my view, is that what the FDIC has done for the past 75 years has nothing to do with Citigroup or Goldman Sachs or Bank of America or J.P. Morgan. What the FDIC does is uh, they arrange for a sale of the bank's deposits and often some of its its assets, sometimes the whole bank, um, in advance. They sell the bank over the weekend to a pre-chosen buyer, and on Monday morning, everything opens up as normal. That's really hard to do when you're talking about J.P. Morgan or Citigroup. There just aren't lots of buyers out there. So one problem with that approach is you may not find a buyer for a large uh, financial institution that's in distress. The other problem, in my view, is if you do find a buyer, what you're doing is making a giant financial institution even gianter, which is what happened with J.P. Morgan during during the crisis. They got bigger and bigger and, and ended up with a larger and larger share of the banking industry. So the premise was wrong. It was a very elaborate set of rules, as Stephen said. It explicitly requires a liquidation. This is at the point where a single point of entry is a little problematic under under OLA, which in my view is a bad idea to say that we can never try to reorganize a financial institution. So it was very complicated. I don't think all that effectively, um, all that effective. And, and the question is, where are we now, which I think we'll get to. Well, that, that makes me, that leads me to my next question, which is, in terms of where we should go, do we need to go to the bankruptcy code, or are the OLA problems fixable? Can we just tweak OLA and make that work? And I'll, I'll ask both of you that question, really. I think we want to do both. I think you want to tweak okay. bankruptcy and tweak OLA. So, so, so also, just I'll throw in the mix, one of the things Corn and Toomey does, of course, is to repeal OLA and right. substitute only 14, and I'm also interested in both of your right. thoughts 
well, on whether that's a good plan. Well, that's one of the reasons why I think it's it's hopelessly unrealistic because I think you need to m at least maintain OLA as the backstop because, well, you know, as a plan B. Uh, maybe we could have a preference for Chapter 14, um, but you need a plan B for the situation where multiple financial institutions fail simultaneously and, you know, what are we going to do then? Or is it just going to be totally ad hoc like it was back in 2008 and 2009? Or do we want to have at least something of a framework? Now, I agree with David that, you know, OLA is not ideal, and FDIC has probably stretched the limits of its ability to reinterpret that statute um, in, the, in the way it wants to. Um, but it's, it's trying to do some, something now. I mean, I think one thing to make OLA better, right, would be, for example, to be just more committed to the idea of OLA. We have all these carve-outs. So, like, for example, the insurance industry is essentially entirely carved out of OLA. If we want to be serious about having a single resolution of a big financial institution, it should be of the entire financial institution and not bits and parts of it because that makes it totally unworkable. David, your thoughts on the same question? So I, I, I really agree with, with Stephen. I, I would weigh things a little bit different. I am um, less confident that the world would end if we ended, if, if, if OLA suddenly disappeared. So I, I, I think I'm a little bit more optimistic about what could be done with bankruptcy as amended by, by Chapter 14. But like Stephen, I I don't favor repealing OLA. I, I think OLA should be should be kept in place, and I, I do think it's useful to have some backstop there. Um, so that said, I, I think there are ways to tinker with both OLA and with the bankruptcy code. With OLA, the first thing I would do is is um, get rid of that the thou shalt liquidate provision, so that mm -hmm. something like single point of entry is legal under under OLA. Um, there's some other aspects of single point of entry, and we may be getting into that a little bit more later, but um, that I think it, it might also be helpful to codify so that a single point of entry assumes that bonds and other long-term debt will be what's restructured and that short-term obligations will be protected. And I think you might want to be explicit about that and say short-term obligations are going to be protected. The Federal Reserve is already moving to require that the big banks hold bonds, so I don't think you need to to, um, to do anything with OLA about that. But there, there's some tinkering you could do around the edges. With the bankruptcy code, um, same sort of thing. I think we'll probably also talk about the, the Corn and Toomey bill, which makes a lot of the proposals yeah. that, um, that I think are necessary. But the bottom line is, I think the ideal would be to make bankruptcy the solution of choice in the vast majority of cases and have OLA as an absolute last resort back, backstop. Well, that being said, let's go ahead and take a closer look at Chapter 14. Uh, as uh, in this instance, it's uh, proposed in the Corn and Toomey uh, bill. There's, the, of course, the old saying, the devil is in the details, and that's certainly true here. Uh, indeed, uh, Stephen, earlier you referred to the Chapter 14 proposal first put forward by Hoover, and if you lay those uh, two Chapter 14 proposals side by side, they uh, part company on just about everything except the, the number of the bankruptcy code chapter. So, Professor Lubin, let's start with the basic structure. Mm -hmm. Walk us through the basic structural principles of Chapter 14. I mean, how would it work? What is the fundamental design of Chapter 14? As I understand it, they would repeal 
OLA, and they would replace it with a Chapter 14 process, which applies to, I guess, two classes of financial institutions, bank holding companies and uh, firms that engage in uh, finance activities as identified by the Federal Reserve under Section 4K. Um, and the basic idea or the basic structure is, as you said, somewhat like a, a S SPOE, where the assets, or at least the good assets, would be transferred to a new bridge entity and the, uh, and the institution reorganized on that basis. It, they add a little bit of complicating factors by having this special trustee who would own the, uh, the bridge entity. I'm not sure exactly what the, what the purpose is of that. Uh, one interesting um, and I think actually quite useful feature is the, the way they structure the, the bankruptcy judges who would hear these cases. And I think that is something that, you know, any proposal might want to sort of glom onto this idea of having a panel of special, uh, special bankruptcy judges with special expertise. I mean, the one overriding question with all reform efforts is what does Stern do to, to this question, right? Um, can we really have bankruptcy judges hearing these cases and then have you know, the Supreme Court decide, well, they couldn't hear the case after after that, it was all over with. That would, that would be, be disappointing. Yeah, that, and that would be probably disastrous for the financial system. So so you talked, you mentioned the SPOE notion. So, Professor Skeel, what, what's the rationale for that? And earlier you mentioned that if OLA were tweaked to, to go that way, it would help. But explain why we're talking about an SPOE-type approach. What does that do for us? So, so the vision of SPOE is to create a surgical approach to resolving a troubled financial group, a financial institution that's, that's a large financial conglomerate. And the idea is rather than putting the holding company and the several thousand subsidiaries into resolution, we just put the holding company into resolution. And then the SPOE works essentially the same way as Stephen just described current Chapter 14 as, as working. The, the Corn and Toomey proposal is a proposal effectively to use an SPOE kind of approach in bankruptcy. Um, and, and the way that approach would work is the, uh, the holding company would be put into resolution if we're in OLA, and then the assets and the short-term liabilities and the secured obligations of the holding company would be transferred to a bridge institution. The stock and the long-term obligations, which would primarily be long-term unsecured obligations, which would primarily be bonds, would be left behind. And then the stock would probably be ultimately wiped out. The bonds would get equity in the bridge institution. And presto, we've recapitalized the holding company. The hope is that there would not be a need to, um, to put other subsidiaries into resolution. It might be some would have to be put into resolution, but the fewer the better is the idea. And, and one, of, one of the benefits of this, in addition to the surgical nature, we're just focusing on one entity, is that it solves an international coordination problem. One of the big concerns when Lehman failed is that it caused problems all over the world, and there's been a lot of hand-wringing about how can we coordinate the response to the failure of a global CIFI, a global financial institution. 
single point of entry tries to address that problem by um, focusing everything on the holding company with the assumption the subsidiaries will be kept operating, and so it doesn't matter if some of them are in foreign countries. So, Professor Skeel, you've you've really described very clearly the uh, sort of the guts of the bill, the heart of the bill, which this this quick sale under Section 363 uh, of the assets of the covered financial company, the CFC, to the uh, bridge company, and you've explained what the point is of doing it that way. Professor Lubin, I want to ask you a question, though. Could one surmise that what we're looking at is not really a sale at all? Hmm. I mean, is this, in a sense, really anything more than what we had in the old railroad receivership cases? I, I mean, it's a could one perhaps cynically say this is a fictional sale, just a sham? If so, is that a problem, or is this a real sale? Well, it's a real sale as much as you know any other 363 sale is a, is a real sale, especially if you, for example, are selling to an entity that's controlled by the secured lender who's buying it all with a credit bid. Um, so, you know, the, the, part, of, part of your question raises a, a much broader bankruptcy question about, you know, 363 sales and should we be allowing them to the but, extent But who is, this co- who, is the, who is the buyer? Well, here? the buyer is essentially the creditors, right? Because as uh, David explained, the creditors will probably end up with the equity, right, in the new bridge company. And this is like the old railroad receiverships, right? And in many respects, but, it, you know... It's it, exactly like them. It's exactly like them. It's, it's also, though, like any Chapter 11 where you convert debt into equity, right? It, that is a sale to the, the bond But it's not treated as a sale. It's treated as, a, as mm-hmm. a, a, an actual yeah. reorganization. And I guess a, a question I would have, and David, I'll, I'll ask you, I mean, if we're going to do this sort of sale, and I know you've written extensively about the old railroad receiverships, uh, one question, I mean, how would we determine the price for this sale? So... I'll answer that question in a second, but I I, I just want to uh, agree with you that these are sham sales, and it is precisely what was done in the old railroad receiverships, and it does raise the question, why do we need to be doing that? Uh, In the uh, railroad receivership era, it was done because there was no way to do an ordinary reorganization, and it was a way to manipulate the laws. Once it was fully in place, we codified it. Um, and you know, one way to look at this might be that ideally we'd move in that same direction. So I, I think this is worrisome to the extent it's completely discretionary and you can do the sale however you want. The more we codify what the rules are, the better I feel about it. So if we codify that the, um, that the short-term obligations are going to be paid in full. I don't like that conclusion. I don't think they should. I think there's some problems with that. But I'm okay with it if you tell me in advance that's what we're going to do. And you tell me in advance that we're going to write down um, the bond debt. None of that was the actual question you asked me. The question you asked me... <laughs> it was well, the next question. Oh, well, I, will, well I, ask you, I will answer that question. So the question is... Um, your question was, well, how do you decide what the old creditors get? And this is a point on which um, SPOE under OLA, as envisioned by the FDIC, and bankruptcy's quick 363 sale, as envisioned by Hoover, differ a little bit. The FDIC has said, we're going to decide at some point how much equity um, the old creditors get and how much their obligations are going to um, 
be written down. And the FDIC has resolutely refused to specify exactly how or when they're going to do it. The Hoover idea is that that um, within a month or so, I forget exactly what the time frame is, there would be an, essentially a, a small IPO. There would be a sale of some of the equity, and that sale would be used to price the equity. And once the market had priced the equity, then that would determine if shareholders are wiped out and what the what the old bondholders get. Well, I ask both of you, how does under Corn and Toomey, how do we figure out the price of this? Sale. How, how how do we know what to sell it for? Uh, I mean, you could just take bids on it. Um, I assume that the idea would be to do it the way an IPO is done, where you can't where the underwriter canvasses the market and and comes up with a price. But but that is a good question. Yeah, of course, this has to happen over the weekend. Well, too. right. No, it's, it doesn't have to happen. It can happen. It can happen three months later. So it does not have to have to happen instantly. What happens has to happen over the weekend is the transfer has to occur over the weekend. Well, and, and that, let me throw in another part of the sort of the structure of it. And uh, Professor Lubin, I want to throw this one to you. To another aspect of this. Uh, the way this would actually work out, uh, as as Professor Skeel was describing, some of the debts and contracts are carried over to the bridge company uh, and the, the new entity, and they're going to get paid in full. People get left behind, and Old Co., which mm-hmm. has like just debts and really no assets, doesn't don't fare quite so well. How do we decide? And this sort of gets a little bit back to what you were saying, David, about your concerns about uh, some of the what happens to some of the obligations, how do we decide which ones get carried over, which ones don't, and who makes that decision? Well, no, I think it raises a good question. I think some of David's comments, too, raise the, this sort of overarching question about whether we really need to import all of the sort of language of sales and 363 into this process because, as, as David indicated, right, I mean, the the railroad receiverships had to do this because they didn't have a discharge and they didn't have other mechanisms and they needed to recreate them with the sale. We don't really need to do that anymore. And presumably you could start with a clean slate with a statute that doesn't adopt all of this because the, the current bill is a little bit vague on exactly what happens after the assets are transferred. Right Now, as to the question about which assets are transferred, if we're in an ideal world... It's just the holding company, and that's probably actually an easier question than it sounds like because the holding company doesn't have a lot of assets, right? It's mostly just shares and operating subsidiaries. And then it has a whole bunch of debt, but um, the the ideal world is is that most of that is going to be incurring losses, and that makes us feel good, too, because we wipe out shareholders, we wipe out bondholders, and we're at least partially living up to the mandate of Dodd-Frank that, you know, losses will be imposed on somebody. We're not sure why, but we, we, want, we want exactly we want we want to impose losses on somebody, especially somebody other than taxpayers. Um, but you know there there is there is a real question. I think one of the one of the big issues in both chapter the chapter fourteen bill and SPOE, and I actually submitted a comment letter to the FDIC on this, is is that financial institutions don't usually fail because of problems at their holding company. They usually fail because of problems at an operating subsidiary. Um, and so this whole notion that we're going to do this surgically and you know, focus totally on the holding company may be a bit of a fallacy. Okay. David, your thoughts on that. And my, my worry about who gets to pick, and, and, and indeed the process aspect with regard to which debts and contracts get favored by getting moved to the, to the bridge company, which get left behind, 
And in the process as envisioned, do the stakeholders get a vote on this? Do they even get the right to object? Do they even get notice of who gets picked to move to the promised land? How does this work? Well, I think the short answer to all of those questions, do they vote? Do they do they have a say? Do they get notice? Or the short answer to most of those questions is only in a very limited sense. As a, as a practical matter, both SPOE and the, the use of SPOE through 363 in bankruptcy anticipate a very quick transfer and don't really anticipate a full-blown process uh, in, in OLA, the FDIC would just make these decisions. A bankruptcy judge would have to make the decision in bankruptcy, but it would be made very quickly and not clear how much. I think there would be, um, I forget how much notice it is, 12 hours or 24 hours or something like that. There would be limited notice, but realistically, we're not talking about anything that looks like Chapter 11 and and the kinds of protections you see in Chapter 11. And I would just to jump into, I would add, right, the bankruptcy judge is supposed to make the decision, but presumably it's a decision that's going to be placed in front of the bankruptcy judge that's made by somebody else prior to the filing. So it's sort of like a yes or no decision on somebody else's decision. I mean, what's the bankruptcy judge supposed to say? I mean, the, the Fed's basically coming to the judge saying, this has to be done or there's a significant risk to the United States economy, and you need to decide now. Yeah, and, that, and, and we've made that determination. And that's why I think that it needs to be specified as much in advance as possible. I, I, I think this quick timing is inevitable. And in fact, yeah. in the debate between OLA and bankruptcy, uh, between advocates of the FDIC and advocates of bankruptcy, the argument that advocates of the FDIC said over and over is bankruptcy is not fast enough. And and I, I think there's something to that argument. So it seems to me that the solution isn't to build in six months and all kinds of notice. The, the solution is to specify in as much detail as possible in advance what the rules are going to be if this is done. Let's turn to a, a different question, a very important question, which is the eligibility question. Uh, and I know the Hoover proposal, I know the Corn and Toomey bill, they have very different uh, takes on eligibility. So, David, I'll turn to you. Um, under the Hoover proposal, how would the uh, covered financial corporation have been defined? So, uh, the original Hoover proposal, the original Chapter 14, which was the tinkering with chapter or with bankruptcy that we talked about earlier had a definition of a covered financial, uh, I forget the exactly, a covered financial corporation mm-hmm. or institution would be a, an institution that had at least $100 billion in assets and that was substantially, substantially consisted in financial services or financial contracts. So the two pieces yeah. were your financial institution and $100 billion. What the about in new, the Senate bill? The newer, the Senate bill, which is the 363 sale we've been right. talking about. And it's important, to, I think, right. to, to note that the Senate bill and the 363 sale does not displace the earlier proposal. The Hoover folks are still interested in those changes to, to Chapter 14. So in a sense, the Senate bill is a piece of a larger set of proposals. But the, but the Senate bill removes the $100 billion requirement and focuses just on whether you're a financial institution or not. So in theory, 
as I understand it, any financial institution could use the three quick three three sixty. What do you sale. think about that, Professor Lubin? Is it a good idea to drop the floor requirement? We're essentially it's at least conceivably possible that virtually any financial institution could be put into Chapter fourteen. The Fed can come in front of the bankruptcy court and say, You got twelve hours you need to put this institution uh, through a well, 363 sale. It's even broader than that, right, because the, the institution does have an ability to file a voluntary petition, too. So even without the Fed, presumably a right. a small financial institution could invoke Absolutely. Chapter 14. Uh, one other interesting quirk of the bill, as I read it, does repeal their ability to file under Chapter 11, which means that a small hedge fund no longer could file under 11, but they would have to file under 14, which is kind of... I'm not sure if that was intentional or not. That that may have just be a drafting quirk um, of you know not understanding how Section 109 works in the bankruptcy code. Uh, but by carving out financial institutions from Chapter 7, they also carved them out of Chapter 11 too. Um, you know, it, it strikes me as a strange, as a, kind of a strange move because it, to some degree, right, what we're talking about are SIFIs, right? The whole reason to have special process for these these institutions is because of their collateral effects. It's not all financial institutions. We have examples of, you know, smaller financial institutions who have successfully, you know, bank holding companies that have gone through Chapter 11, you know, and the world doesn't come to an end. So that usually works pretty well. So I don't know that you would want to displace all of that by this new Chapter 14. It seems to make more sense to do something along the lines of what Hoover is talking about and which OLA does too, right? You you don't – this is not open to the world. Any right. Anybody who has a connection with finance can't just – file under OLA. Well, in the bill, it talks about when, if the Fed's petitioning uh, to put them in involuntarily, uh, they have to make this showing of the imminent, finan- imminent substantial harm to financial stability in the United States. Talk about that. Uh, is that a sufficient constraint, or it, let's conceive of they're coming in front of the bankruptcy judge, who, as uh, David said, has 12 hours hmm. here. Uh, in is that going to be a sufficient constraint, or do we need this? Okay, it has to at least be $100 billion, uh, in size. Well, I mean, I, su- I suppose it does present a constraint in the sense that it keeps the Fed from involuntarily putting in a small hedge fund that nobody cares about, right? But it, it, it does leave, you know, that, that constraint does not apply in the case of a voluntary petition, which is, is also another little drafting quirk. But, I mean, again... Why? Why not limit it to the big financial institutions? That's the whole reason to have a special process is because of the collateral effects. Otherwise, you know, it seems as though you should just leave it to the normal bankruptcy well, process. And how would we figure out what that size is? I mean, even at the $100 billion, uh, as of uh, December 31 of 2013, I think there were 27 financial institutions in the United States. I mean, I don't know. David, do you think... A failure of the 27th largest financial institution in the United States would actually pose a substantial risk to the United States economy? Probably not if it failed by itself. But um, but I guess I don't see as much of a problem with removing this this $100 billion uh, requirement than as either of y'all do um, for a couple of reasons. One is... Um, I don't think a small hedge fund is going to be wanting to use this approach, and I don't even think a regional bank is going to want to use this approach. The, the approach really only makes sense for a large 
financial institution because of the capital structure of large financial institutions. They have holding companies with essentially no assets in them other than the stock of their subsidiaries, and so they're easy to do this kind of quick and dirty um, so-called sale on. With a regional bank even, I I don't think they're going to have the kind of bond debt that you would need for this to work. And so I, I just think it's not realistic for those other institutions. It's possible you'll have one that'll try to shoehorn them uh, themselves into this and it'll be used uh, for an institution it's not meant for. But I, I think it's important not to exaggerate the, um, the potential problems that you have. And I'm hearing both of you really suggest that you expect more likely the voluntary uh, invocation of the chapter by financial institutions as opposed to the involuntary petitioning by the Fed to put them in. And in the involuntary situation, I'm not hearing either of you express really a a concern that the Fed will exercise its power improvidently. Is that a fair statement, or do you have lurking worries? Well, I mean, I, I think it's a fair statement. I think, you know, the Fed in particular hasn't shown itself to be particularly irrational, unlike some of our other political institutions. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Damn the faint it, praise it, for yeah. sure. <laughs> and which ones do you have in mind? Here, <laughs> hmm. Yes, perhaps some of the ones I've testified in front of. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, I, you know, again, obviously that, that could change over time. Right. And, you know, the, the, certainly there are other people out there in the world who have much more bigger concerns about the Federal Reserve than I do. Uh, <laughs> but um, They may be president. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I, I do think that um, there is something actually to be said for taking the decision out of the political arena. And, that I mean, that is also, I think, one concern with OLA in particular, that the, the tr- Treasury Secretary and w- in consultation with the president – uh, which is kind of a strange meeting to imagine. Um, yes. <laughs> is you know that that is how you're supposed to trigger the OLA nice. proceeding, which does invoke uh, you know a fair amount of politics. In, and in and I know that that's and, and David, you've talked about this. I mean, one of the impetuses behind the Hooper proposal initially was moving this out of the realm of the regulators and, and politics in, in moving more toward a rule of law uh, type of approach. And and I know uh, uh, Professor Jackson when he testified couple weeks ago in front of the House subcommittee emphasized that point very strongly. Um, let's uh, focus on something that uh, you, you brought up earlier, uh, Professor Skeel, which is, is really one of the core problems we have with regard to CIFIs, and that's this fundamental tension between, on the one hand, the need for speed, because it is, and you talked about how this was testified about extensively with regard to OLA, if the, the risk is imminent and real if these if the financial institution cannot get resolved almost immediately it's going to fail and that may trigger a contagion throughout the economy that however that need for speed runs into conflict with due process of law I mean you have stakeholders uh, in the firm uh, that are being affected and there's picking and choosing and who's getting it so just to lay the the groundwork, and you alluded to this earlier, uh, Professor Skeel, can, can you just sort of run through very quickly the process itself and just highlight how expeditious we're talking about under the Corn and Toomey Bill on what Chapter 14 would look like in terms of this happening? 
Well, we are talking about a very quick process. We're talking about uh, putting an institution into bankruptcy essentially over a weekend, and by the end of the weekend, having transferred its assets to a newly created uh, entity um, with the approval of a bankruptcy judge. So we, we're talking about a very, very quick process. And the, the only precedent I can think of for it at all, uh, what this might look like outside of, of, of what Corn and Toomey is proposing, is what happened in Lehman, where Lehman, its main brokerage assets were sold four days after, after the case was filed. And it, it was very difficult. And Judge Peck in that case said... I'm approving this sale, but I didn't have time. You know, I didn't have enough time to go through all the information. Don't don't treat this as as strongly uh, precedential. So, so the speed is a big issue, and I'll just restate what I said earlier. Because of the speed, and because I think the need for speed, I don't think we can get that around that here. Um, I think it's absolutely essential to detail as fully as possible what's allowed with these sales, what's not allowed. And one concern I have with what the FDIC has been doing is they've been hedging on all of this. The FDIC does not like to give up discretion. And so even in, in their um, discussion of how SPOE works, they, they keep trying to retain discretion. I think that's a mistake. I think it's a mistake under OLA. I think it would be a mistake under bankruptcy. I think we need these rules as clearly delineated as possible. Professor Lubin, your thoughts. I mean, whose ox is getting gored by this warp speed resolution? And Do you agree with Professor Skeel? It's simply unavoidable. It, what can we do, if anything, to resolve this? I think it probably is unavoidable. I think also uh, one point I would add about David's discussion about Lehman is it's arguable that you couldn't even do that anymore because part of the Lehman sale involved the Fed propping up the broker-dealer, and the Fed has limitations on its ability to do that anymore. Um, so probably you need to do it even faster than Lehman Brothers did it. Uh, because there's, scary there's there's no way for the broker dealer to keep operating without the Fed, the New York Fed standing behind it, um, in in Lehman Brothers. Um, but I think you do need it, um, and I think you, we, what we do have to keep in mind, right, is as David mentioned earlier, the FDIC does have a history, and for that matter, even before the FDIC existed, it's a long history of bank regulators having a power to basically take over a bank overnight and resolve it. And part of that process is, is basically telling people ahead of time, hey, this is a regulated industry. If things go poorly, we've got a lot of discretion and we can do it fast. So I tend to agree with David. Part of this is spelling this out ahead of time and that is sort of addressing the due process issue up front by telling people, look, if you become a bondholder in Goldman Sachs, there's a risk that your investment will vaporize overnight, basically, because the government will decide that's what's necessary. As opposed to, and, and that would be, I think, uh, hearing your discussion from both of you, a very significant improvement over the, what Corn and Toomey currently has, which, as, as you were both pointing out, really doesn't spell out specifically everyone who gets carried over and everyone who doesn't. And, and so there's going to be a sorting that happens. It's not even 100% clear who does the sorting on who gets carried out, which means there are issues about your rights being affected that you don't know how it's going to get worked out, whereas if the rules were spelled, you win. Okay, let's, let's turn to, uh, let's hypothesize uh, that 
we, we have to live with the speed. The chapter 14 and going through the bankruptcy court system is basically a sound idea. Uh, also, let's just take as a given that the uh, structure of SPOE, transfer to bridge company, all makes sense. Assume also we can figure out uh, which entities should be covered financial institutions there uh, and solomonically, wisely balance this speed process tension. Okay, so we need to make this baby work is what I'm getting at. So to do that, uh, and with this extreme need for speed we've been discussing, uh, the idea that the newly formed entity is going to have to hit the ground running uh, almost instantaneously, uh, the whole idea, of course, being to stem any contagion risk. They need to be able to perform their financial contracts. Pretty sure uh, that we're going to need something called money, and we're going to need a whole lot of it right away, i.e., we're going to have to have access to financing. Of course, uh, Professor Lubin, this is something uh, that you had brought up earlier, and I'm uh, going to give you an opportunity in a minute to hold <laughs> forth on that because... Uh, I, I guess I could say without sufficient liquidity from the start, uh, we would have a new acronym we'd be dealing with, which is DOA, or Dead <laughs> on Arrival. Uh, so, in Chapter 14, Professor Lubin, where is the money going to come from? And how will this newly formed company get financing? Well, I, I take it we're talking about Chapter 14 as proposed by the Senators, not, not, not the Hoover Institution. We're, right? we're talking about the, the S-1861. Well, there is a apparently a, a lot. They have more faith in the private dip market than I do, um, and I think that that's the short answer to the question. Um, but Explain. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, they, they have no provision for financing, and by repealing OLA, they actually take out the one uh, avenue for government financing that might be might be available because OLA does have embedded in it this sort of, again, overly complicated, like everything in LA, OLA, uh, overly complicated financing mechanism, but at least it's there. Uh, their Chapter 14 proposal has no provisions for uh, financing other than the general provisions of 364. Well, David, why, why would that be? I mean, why would there be no provision whatsoever for financing in the Corn and Toomey bill? I mean, does this make any sense? And as Professor Lehman said, at least in OLA there is a potential backup. Uh, he also alluded to the Hoover proposal, and could you talk about the financing rules that would be available there. So could you elaborate on so that? So the, the original Hoover proposal, which is not the 363 right. sale, the, the original set of ideas we talked about initially, had a, a limited adjustment to debtor in possession financing in bankruptcy. And the limited adjustment is it would provide for early payouts to sensitive creditors. So creditors that might be hurt, say derivatives, counterparties, if they don't have access to a payout for a period of time, the Hoover proposal would allow for them to be paid in full, or not no, paid early, not in full, paid conservatively, but paid early, but did not, not have extra financing provisions. The Cornyn-Toomey bill, which is the 363 sale, as, as Stephen said, and as you've said, does not have a finance, financing mechanism um, with it. 
I am of the view that there should be additional financing. So I'm not going to at least completely disagree with you all about this. I think that there should be access to the, the Fed discount window or some sort of source of finance. So, so the assumption, I mean, and this is going off of what uh, Professor Lubin was saying, it apparently the Corn and Toomey assumption is that the private market will be This is right. There. And and the assumption, well, there, there are a, a couple ways to go at that. One is, assuming the world as we know it now, the logic would be when we do this transfer to the new entity, we're not dealing anymore with the old entity that had a huge, an awful-looking balance sheet. We're looking at something that's solvent now. And... So uh, it may be possible to borrow in the private market. I have a little more confidence than Stephen does about the ability to borrow in the, the private market, although um, I will say I, I, I personally am in favor of some sort of government um, backstop on, on this financially. The other thing I'll say is we're talking so far just about the markets as they are now. It is possible that you could create a private funding mechanism that if it, it were set up in advance would um, would speed up the dip financing uh, and change the dip financing market. And there's a lot of discussion going on along those lines right now of ways to sort of pre-arrange financing. This is something that's been talked about in the sovereign um, debt sphere. Um, so I, I'm interested in that, and, and if that turns out to be plausible, I think I might throw my weight, whatever weight it is, which is not much. Well, it's, uh, physical weight is, is sufficiently <laughs> large. My political weight is pretty close to zero. Um, I might throw it behind this. Um, but I do favor some government funding, and the way I would think about it is I would want funding based on the old um, Fed emergency funding principle that only on a secured basis where you had a credible um, – you could credibly say the funding is fully secured, maybe even above market rate of interest um, – so a constrained source of funding, more constrained than OLA provides. I mean, one thing about the OLA fund funding is it is it is a it's a fire hydrant of funding and and well maybe or maybe not depending on uh, how they interpret the provisions of Dodd Frank on on valuation, which is another one of these areas where FDIC has been consciously fudged. And I have yeah. also well, Professor Lubin, for yeah. our, for our listeners, explain the, the exact point you're talking about here. Well, so there are limits based on the value of the debtor in the OLA funding mechanism. Although, exactly how that valuation is supposed to happen is a little vague. FDIC put out some rules which basically restate the statute, so they don't tell us anything new. Um, and so, it, in particular, it doesn't say you know actual liquidation value, actual current market value, or can you value the debtor based on some time off in the future when the financial crisis is over and everything is rosy again and asset values have gone way up? If you're allowed to use that, that later valuation, then I agree with David, there's probably unlimited funding available under OLA. If, you're, if it's an actual constraint, that's another story, but again, FDIC won't tell us which valuation they're going to use. Well, so. Stephen, let me ask you, so let's say we're inclined to go with Corn and Toomey, something like that, but we're sitting down with the senators and explaining to them that they do, in fact, need to have a financing proposal in there. And we have to think about it in terms of the kind of institutions they're talking about. I mean, I, I would hypothesize, I mean, let's say J.P. Morgan Chase files. I mean, we're talking about 
uh, a company that had assets of $2.4 trillion. That, that's a lot of money. So how, where's that money going to come from? What kind of financing proposal would you recommend to the senators to add to their bill? Or is the financing problem sufficiently severe that it actually means the entire idea is ill-fated? No, I think the financing problem, is it's extreme because, as you say, the amounts of money involved are so severe, and you're especially likely to need that degree of financing at a point where other lenders are unlikely to want to lend. Uh, if J.P. Morgan Chase is under resolution of any form, probably every other lender in the world immediately stops lending to anybody, other than Switzerland, maybe, um, <laughs> at that point. So I need to get a chalet. Yes. Um, so, you know, in that situation, it's really the, the Federal Reserve Bank and the U.S. Treasury are the only, only parties who can provide the funding. And I agree with David. One model is, is the discount window. Another model might be what they've done in the mortgage servicing companies, although ideally, again, it would be done in advance and specified by statute as opposed to just sort of making it up on an ad hoc basis as you go along. I mean, basically what they've done with the GSEs is they provided unlimited preferred shares in exchange for basically a claim on all the cash flows coming out of the GSEs from here till eternity. Um, now, some creditors are complaining because that all the cash flows thing came in, like, retroactively. Um, and, 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 I, and, you know, that's a legitimate complaint. But if you put it in statute saying, okay, we will fund, you know, a failed SIFI through preferred stock, but the terms of the preferred stock are basically you give us all of your cash flows for the next 50 years or something like that, which is the same kind of penalty that David was talking about, right, to make this sort of very onerous and not real attractive. So, you know, those are the kind of situations where I think it makes sense to put, put in the money and avoid the disruption of the financial markets, but you have to make sure you're not doing it as a bailout to existing shareholders in particular. Um, and then maybe... You use the B word there. Yeah. The, you use the bailout word. Yeah, that, right. That's a concern. And that, it that it of is a concern. I think it's yeah. even a concern with SPOE because, yeah. as I said, you know, the FDIC is not really focusing on how do you keep the, the failed subsidiary alive and is that going to just turn into a, a mass bailout with money flowing from the parent company down to that subsidiary? Well, and what do we do with that? I mean, that, that's a question that there, there's this assumption that everything will be copacetic after you do this transfer, all's well. Uh, but what happens if, in fact, the problems do persist? I mean, do we just simply, do we run those through 14? I mean, it, David, what, what happens if this didn't prove so providential and they do the sale, we now have continuing failures? Well, you, you can put the subsidiaries into bankruptcy if we're talking about bankruptcy, or you can put them into resolution if we're talking about yeah. resolution. On the... SPOE resolution side, the FDIC has thought through all of these issues, and, and their argument is that the holding company can downstream assets or capital to the subsidiaries and solve any problem there. The, 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 um, the complaint that Stephen makes about that is, is a complaint that we might not be maximizing value for the enterprise by doing this. But the bank laws allow the FDIC to do that, and they've taken a position that that is an advantage of resolution, not a disadvantage of, of resolution. But that said, I do think if it were messy enough at the subsidiary level that this might not – it probably would not work, that SPOE 
would would not be a solution if if it was messy. The FDIC would not agree with me about that. But um, but well, well the the, pro, the example that I used in my comment letter to FDIC is I asked them to address the specific example of AIG, where yeah. where the problem is at a subsidiary, and it's a massive kind of black hole kind of problem that's sucking money out of the whole institution. How do you solve that by just resolving the parent company? Right. It's a little bit unclear to me how that works. Right. We've covered a lot of ground, and, and there are other uh, issues so we, that we could spend a whole another hour discussing. We could talk about the issue of which court would hear it, and I know there are a lot of differences in that, and Stephen, you alluded to that. Much about the qualified financial contracts, the QFCs, very important aspect of this that we also uh, could spend a lot of time talking about. Uh, but but that'll be the subject for another podcast. So uh, I'll give each of you a chance to sort of get, offer any final thoughts, sort of parting uh, wisdom or queries or worries. Uh, Professor Lubin, I'll start with you. Any final thoughts you want to offer to our listeners? Well, I think, you know, one of the big challenges here is obviously we do live in a fairly politically polarized time. And I think... Um, for all, all the elements of the current Chapter 14 bill that I find commendable, it comes along with a lot of political baggage, too. And, you know, in my ideal world, we, we could have these discussions without every conversation having to start with, let's repeal OLA. Sure. <laughs> um, but unfortunately, that is the world we live in, and that is one of the challenges, is to get to the what I think is probably the, the best policy solution is not always going to, you know, work with the current politics. Thank you. Professor Skeel. Final so thoughts. so two final thoughts. One is we've talked a lot about the limitations of single point of entry, the problems with the with the corn and Toomey approach. But my bottom line on this is I think these are both promising developments. The idea of using single point of entry, I think, is a very clever strategy for resolving large financial institutions. Making this kind of an approach possible in bankruptcy, I think, is a great idea. And so I wouldn't want people to, to go away thinking this is just a big mess and there's nothing useful in here. I think there's a lot useful in here. The last thing I'll say, because I can't ever talk about these issues without saying this, and I think Stephen would agree with me on what I'm about to say, and that is um, this issue of derivatives, which we skipped past in bankruptcy, I think it's a huge mistake that derivatives are not subject in any way to the automatic stay. And one, yes. of, one of the Chapter 14 proposals, one of the things that OLA does is puts a short stay on derivatives. Even if nothing else were done, if we could put a short stay on derivatives in bankruptcy, I would be a happy man. I would second that. <laughs> yes, I, I, it's interesting because I think that is... A, a fairly widespread uh, view, certainly in the academic uh, community, and uh, of course the politics, as you said, Stephen, uh, make that more challenging. I want to thank both of you uh, for taking the time uh, to talk with me today about this very important issue of how to resolve the ins the insolvencies of systemically important financial institutions. Clearly, uh, this is an issue that is not going to go away. The the specter of the the last Great Recession uh, is still upon us. The worries uh, that will be repeated uh, continue to haunt us. Uh, and both of you have offered very valuable insights and I know are going to continue to, uh, uh, to do so. So thank you both again for joining us today. Thank you, thank Charles. You. Thank you.